and welcome back to Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think the natural world is incredible. Whether tunnelling beneath traffic jams or hiring hot air balloons to hedgehogs, I get to talk to people who are dedicated to or inspired by the natural world. I love this episode. It is with the senior scientist at BirdLife International, but as you'll hear, after 20 minutes of lark sex ratios and how Buddhists are bartering with borrowed budgies, we'll head away from feathers and focus upon tarmac and a couple of very simple ways in which you, yes, you, can help save the natural world. In short, I drove up to Scotland for this interview of two halves, sitting behind the wheel of a borrowed EV and counting all the roadkill en route to learn about something that did not even have a name until this year. And safe to say, I came back a changed man. With so much to take away from this month's guest, this is Trees A Crowd. This is an episode all about traffication. And this is Paul Donald. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Okay, first thing, who are you and, and what do you do? Hi, my name's Paul Donald and I'm currently a senior scientist at BirdLife International. Before that, I worked as a principal scientist for many years for the RSPB, and before that, the British Trust for Ornithology, so the big three. (laughs) What is BirdLife International, for those that don't know? BirdLife International is a a global partnership of bird conservation organisations that pool their resources in terms of sharing money, information, data, and so forth. So we have about 120 members around the world. The RSPB is the BirdLife partner in the UK, Mm -hmm. and we have similar organisations representing other countries around the world. And their actions are shared through a global secretariat, which is based in Cambridge. So has it always been international things then? Because I know that you've spent a lot of time in Kazakhstan and Cape Verde and mm. a whole load of places. Is well, it the international connectivity of our avian friends? or? Yes, I mean, it's partly that. I started off working on conservation issues in the UK. So when I, was, I started my career at the British Trust for Mythology, and I was working there on birds of estuaries, on farmland birds and so mm-hmm. forth. Then I moved to the RSPB where I led a, a four-year study of skylarks, trying to work out why skylark populations had declined. This was the, the 1990s where people first became aware of these sort of massive collapses in farmland biodiversity. And sure. Almost every farmland bird species had its own little troop of researchers following it around. And I, I led a little team looking at the impacts of agriculture on skylarks. But it kind of became clear to me that you know saving skylarks in the UK is important, but the the battle to save the world's wildlife isn't going to be fought in the fields of Cambridgeshire. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fought in the Atlantic forests of Brazil, in you know the 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 forests of Southeast Asia. Why? Be- because the species that occur in the UK, by and large, are common and widespread species at a global level. Very few sure. species in the UK are listed as globally threatened. Increasingly, some of them are. Things like uh, turtle dove has recently become globally threatened. Sure. But the, the critically endangered species, the species which really are going to become extinct in the next, or likely to become extinct in the next 20, 30, 40 years, don't occur in the UK. So I became very interested in working abroad. Of course, the travel's nice as well. Sure. 
And yes, I worked on birds in Kazakhstan, in Thailand, in the Cape Verde Islands, in South Africa, all over the world. Started actually looking at rare larks. So having spent four years doing nothing but looking at skylarks, I mm -hmm. thought, well, are there any sort of rare larks around the world that could benefit from the insights that we've gained from looking at skylarks? Sure. So the first one I looked at was this bird called the Razo lark, which is, occurs on one tiny island, or used to occur on one tiny island in the Cape Verde Islands. Okay. So we started doing some work on that. And the, the year I first went there, I think it was 2001, we thought there were possibly about 50 birds left in the world. And a great majority of them were males. There were very few females, sure. maybe only 15 females left in the world. So we did some research on that, and that kind of led to a conservation programme and uh, a local bird conservation, a local conservation organisation called Biosfera took up the flag. And then the Portuguese BirdLife Partner, an mm -hmm. organisation called Spare, joined in. And now there are well over 3,000 razo larks in the world. And they occur now on not one island, but on two islands because we restored a neighbouring island. So that was fantastic. And, you know, it, it was all kind of started from the work I was doing on, on skylarks in the UK. Why do you think it got down to a stage where there was such a gender disparity? Well, this, this is, <laughs> that's the question I asked myself when I was there. So when I got back, I got really interested in this issue of sex ratios yeah. in birds and actually wrote a, a very lengthy uh, research paper, the first to look at this issue really in any great detail, okay. and found this pattern across all bird species that as a species slides towards extinction, as its population gets smaller and smaller and smaller, mm -hmm. so the sex ratio becomes increasingly biased towards males okay. in birds. And in fact, the opposite happens in mammals. There's oh. a very complicated explanation for it. Go on, you've got 45 minutes. <laughs> 45 minutes or seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the theory goes like this. So in birds, males live slightly longer on average than females. Okay. Okay. It's the opposite way in mammals. If yeah. you go into an old people's home, the majority of people that you see will be ladies, yes. not gentlemen. Okay. So it's a small Did you difference. go into an old people's home for your studies? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it was kind of an old people's home for, for brazo larks because what was happening, <laughs> we think, was that because the nests, because they weren't breeding very much, mm -hmm. the population was aging. So as the population aged, so this little difference in male and female survival became bigger, more and, and more apparent. And the males survive better than the females, so over time the population becomes increasingly dominated towards males. What we find now, now they're breeding crazily, is that the sex ratios are the same. So the sex ratios change over time according to how often birds are breeding. And so is it normally also younger birds that breed more successfully and fledge? Uh, not necessarily. It tends to be older birds, more experienced birds tend to have higher reproductive success. Okay, so it wasn't just the loss of the birds that were stopping the numbers going up. It was the fact that it, the older birds, for some reason, weren't creating as many eggs. Exactly. And, and the reason for that was drought. Uh, okay. So we, we caught the razo larks at the end of a long period of drought. Now, they're incredibly given that they're tiny little birds on a, a drought-prone island, the fact that they've survived at all is remarkable. Mm -hmm. They are incredibly long-lived given the, the, the conditions that they survive yeah. in. But over time, you get these very, very long droughts in Cape Verde that can last 20 years or something like that. And we, we, we went there at the end of a drought and the population was just about clinging on. And since then, thankfully, we've had a lot of rain and we've restored this neighbouring island. Sure. 
So now we think that there's a, you know, there's a decent population and hope that it will be uh, safer in the long term than it was before. So was it a drought concern that was affecting British Skylark numbers as well? Or what was the expertise that you in particular brought across to help there? Well, I mean, in, in a sense, it was, it was looking at productivity. So we got very, very good at finding and monitoring Skylark nests. We knew exactly how to find the nests. Sure. We knew exactly how to monitor the them. ground the nesting, right? Yes, the ground nesting, yeah. And, and the, the Razo Lark is actually, it's a very, very close relate to the Skylark. It's even in the same genus, the, okay. the genus Alorda, and there's, there's only three species in that genus, sorry, four species in that genus. So it's very closely related. So we thought, well, there must be something that we can do. You know, we, we've perfected all these techniques for finding and monitoring nests, for analysing faecal samples, for weighing, monitoring chicks and so mm. forth. We know how to count them. We know how to, you know, all this information that we gathered. So can we put it to use on something a bit rarer than a Skylark? And so, yeah, the, the Razo Lark project was fantastically successful but I mean for, for me it was intellectually very interesting because it led me on to this sex ratios sure. thing which um, yeah I think is it's quite important and it's you know, it's it's become I think probably my most highly cited paper that I've so you're the lark sex ratio guy <laughs> yeah anything you want to know about lark sex ratios <laughs> I'm here <laughs> was this for what you won the Marsh Award for the ZSL um, I, I think that was more for my work on agriculture but also actually an, another paper I wrote, which we published in Science, which was looking at the extent to which European law is successful or not at protecting bird populations. And I led this big analysis that looked across population trends of, of birds looking right the way across Europe and found that there's a really, really strong impact. If you compare EU countries with non-EU countries mm-hmm. or before countries joined the EU compared with after the countries joined the EU, species that are listed on EU laws versus species that aren't listed sure. on laws, all these kind of comparisons. And the results were absolutely robust, showing that if you're a species that's listed in EU law as being a, a conservation priority species, you do better as a result. There's no doubt about it. So hypothetically speaking, you're not particularly optimistic about, say, a country voted to leave the European Union, hypothetically. Oh, let's hope you, that never happens. <laughs> you would you would therefore worry probably for the protection of endangered species. Yes, I, th- I think so, given that we know that these laws are working, uh, are, are working very effectively. The, the EU laws, essentially, they're, they're quite interesting in that they don't sort of dictate the law on the ground. Mm-hmm. They're, they're essentially principles. They're a set of principles. The, these are the species you've got to conserve and you've got to monitor them and so forth. But they don't they don't dictate to each country, you will create these nature reserves and you will do this, that and the other. That's yeah. kind of down... It's the, not target-based. Exactly. The, the, the details buried in domestic law, not in European law. The European law sets out broad principles. It's up to the individual countries to implement them on the ground, as it were. Now, if... If a country were to leave the EU and they were to maintain the same, hypothetically, yeah. and they were to maintain the same laws, then you know, hypothetically, the, the birds that benefit should continue to benefit. But so of course, there is if... no longer that kind of higher level of authority that conservationists can appeal to if they don't do that. Yeah. So hypothetically, if a government was trying to just remove all of the laws off the statute books that mm. related to all pre-existing EU legislation, yes. that would probably not be a good thing. It would probably hypothetically not be a good thing. No, no. <laughs> So has it always been birds? What was your childhood like? Where does this um, all start? Well, it, it, where my, does the young master uh, sex ratio <laughs> lark yeah, Where did the sex ratios of larks <laughs> come from? My, my parents, uh, they've never driven a car. They've always loved walking in the countryside. And of course, when we were, my sister and I were kids, we were perhaps slightly unwillingly dragged around with them on buses and on bicycles feeling. and on, yeah. <laughs> and um, they walked 
in the countryside. They love doing it. They still do it. You know, well into their ages, they still enjoy long walks in the countryside. They can walk the back legs off most 60-year-olds. Hmm. And it came from there. But why I suddenly... I mean, they're not sort of... They're not naturalists in any sense. They just love being outdoors and they love scenery and they love wild sounds sure. and stuff. But they're not bird watchers. I wouldn't know. They would never describe themselves as bird watchers. Quite how I flipped from being a kind of slightly reluctantly dragged along kid to being someone who would get up at four o'clock in the morning and walk 20 miles looking for birds. I don't really know. I guess it's either in you or it's not in you. Sure. I remember this fabulous quote that um, somebody asked David Attenborough. It said, um, when did you first get your love of wildlife? And he said, when did you lose yours? Sort of suggesting that it's kind of, you know, yeah. ingrained in people. And there's an American ecologist called E.O. Wilson, um, sadly no longer with us, died a couple of years ago, who wrote this book called Biophilia. Uh -huh. which is about this this idea that we have this innate love of uh, why we have this kind of innate love of wildlife and we're kind of losing it a bit you live in cities you know yeah. in high-rise buildings you never see nature it's something that happens out there do you think there's a cyclical aspect potentially in work that if we move to one extreme that we'll start to want it more and we'll be drawn back <clears throat> i mean i've lived in cities mm. and i've lived in mm. the countryside and I can see a sort of a swell of city dwellers wanting to head out. The, the mm. financial restrictions are significant, which stops people really getting out of cities in one sense. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, mean, I, I would really like to know more about what it is that drives these patterns. And I did a bit of research on that, in fact, some, some years ago and looked at things like economy and so forth. If you look across all the world's countries, mm -hmm. and what we did was we sort of looked at all the, all the world's countries and we developed this kind of metric of biophilia. So we looked at things like uh, whether they're a member of CBD or not when they joined, uh, how much they spend on nature conservation, because figures on that are available for many countries, sure. the size of the local bird life partner, all these kind of different things. So we kind of had this index of greenness. Mm -hmm. And then we tried, we looked to see how that was related to all these other national level metrics. And the thing that came out more than anything else, more than GDP or anything, was governance, quality of governance of a country. The better governed a country is, not necessarily the richer it is, but the higher the governance, sure. the more biophilic it is as a country. And what was really interesting was that there's quite a lot of similar research being done on individual people. Yeah. And countries behave exactly like individual people. It's the same drivers, the same predictors that determine a greenness or openness to green issues in people. You're suggesting that if I govern my time and myself more effectively, I'm going to be more inclined to find green spaces. Oh, it's it's not impossible. I mean, that's that's one interesting avenue to explore. Yeah. So if anyone wants to get good at organising their lifestyle, maybe it's best to go outside to do it and then yeah. perhaps support each other. <laughs> do you remember what was the first bird you saw in inverted commas? I think it was. I don't kind of actually remember it. My parents told me about this, but we were on a family holiday in Dorset, Carlos, obviously. And we'd somehow managed, I think we cycled or got a bus or something out to where uh, the cottage where Thomas Hardy was born mm -hmm. uh, in a village, I think it was called Stinsford. Yeah. And um, my parents went in because they wanted to see that, you know, they're big fans of Thomas Hardy. And I didn't, I think I must have been having a strop. I was probably about eight at the time or sure. something. And I didn't, I'd had enough of listening to stuff about Thomas Hardy. So I sat, I sat outside, of course, you'd never do that these days. You'd never leave an eight-year-old kid on their own outside. But, and uh, it was next to a churchyard, as I remember. And I got fascinated by seeing this bird on the gravestone moving from gravestone to gravestone which i now know was a spotted flycatcher mm -hmm. and uh my parents said that when they came out i'd changed as I, I was a different different person altogether and uh 
So I guess I don't actually remember seeing the spotted flycatcher, but they but that's, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. So did they buy you binoculars and they, Yeah, they yeah. I, I think I started pestering them for binoculars in a field garden. That was it. They didn't see me for the next twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> and am I right in saying you studied um, agricultural zoology at, at Leeds? Leeds yeah, yeah, I did. I did that for my undergraduate degree. Then I went. Why agricultural zoology? I, I honestly can't remember. Maybe it was easy to get in. I don't know. It was a long time ago. What's the What's the specific difference? Is it about like looking after farm animals primarily? No. It, well, it, partly. I mean, it, it it's about the zoology of creatures, or the zoology and the biology of creatures that uh, influence. Obviously, there's a lot of work on parasitology, for example. Okay. Or on crop pests, that kind of thing. And and I think actually it was quite useful because it, it gave me a bit of an agricultural grounding that was very useful when I started looking at things like the skylark, mm-hmm. you know, entrenched in these agricultural systems. So. I spoke to the relatively new CEO of the Manx Wildlife Trust. Oh, right. Um, he's a guy called Lee Morris, who's got a background in horticulture and agriculture. Right. And increasingly, I'm always impressed by people who have started in an agricultural background or a horticultural background mm. and then have used that as a route into coping with the realities of the conservation message. Yes. Because yeah. one of the biggest issues, it seems, with modern conservation is the the farm issue Mm. of how we farm what we farm where we farm and how they are enabled to enact conservation goals to the process if they Mm. are permitted Mm. by said governance Um, and i think he did that very very well indeed just the the timbers and you You can actually see the isle of man from our garden can you yeah you can't see the sea but you can see the top of the hills one of the things before before we get onto traffication one of the things i really wanted to touch on was I think you've got a sort of a background in global trade of birds as well. Yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment, actually. It's a big global problem for lots of different reasons. So people taking songbirds for cage birds, for example, parrots, of course, people taking falcons for falconry, people trading vulture parts for various belief systems in uh-huh. Africa and so forth. So it's a huge global problem. And we know that in some parts of the world, it's, it's a really serious problem. So, for example, in Southeast Asia, there's been a lot of attention recently on the trade in songbirds for for cage birds and their singing contests and these things called merit releases as well. What's a merit It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a Buddhist practice whereby you buy a bird and you release it. So you're, you're, you're giving it freedom. It's a spiritual thing. It's a kind of an emblem of, of, sure. of generosity giving you're, an animal you its freedom. You are a good Buddhist. You free yes. the bird. Yeah, but unfortunately these birds are being captured in yeah. huge numbers. Many of them die, of course. Just around caught. the other side of Everest, there's a guy with a cage who then brings it back <laughs> around in a car and sells it to another yeah, one of I mean, Buddhists. It's, it's really a big problem in Southeast Asia, places like Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, places like that. And because they're not always native to that region and because they're not very well looked after, a lot of them die very sure. shortly afterwards. So, But then... It's an astonishing fact that there are probably more birds in cages on Java now than there are in the wild. It's it's, it's incredibly prevalent. And if you don't have a sort of a nice bird in the cage mm-hmm. in Indonesia, you're kind of um, you know you're missing something in your life. I always think of the trade in birds as something Victorian that we've moved past. Like the RSPB famously started up yeah. because they were against yeah. the plumage trade, yeah. and I think I've only got one friend who's who's got birds that they keep finches. Mm. Probably think, captive bred though, aren't they? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. But it's that thing of, I feel like we sort of got past it, but on an international mm. scale, it sounds like it's getting worse. Yes, in some parts of the world it is. Um, so what do you do? How do you, how do you try well, and affect that what, for better? Well, I, I've just been doing the research to look at, to see as, what, what essentially we've been doing is a global overview of trade in birds. So we know that this, there's this one sector of trade, songbirds in Southeast Asia, uh-huh. is particularly bad. And there's a whole load of people working on it and, you know, they're doing some great work down there. But, 
what was less clear really was whether that's an isolated thing or just a particularly well-documented sector of trade. And in fact, there's loads of other equally damaging trade sectors around the world that aren't being so well looked sure. at. So the idea of this piece of research, which I'm just, just finishing now, was to look to see whether we can kind of piece all these different data sets together to get a picture of the whole global trade issue. Where are the hotspots of trade? Uh, what are the species being most badly affected sure. and so forth? And can we actually even combine these data sets? Because a lot of trade is illegal and therefore it's clandestine and therefore it's, it's quite hard to monitor. almost impossible to measure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Especially if you live in the little bottom corner of, of southern Scotland where you can't get out. <laughs> yes, yeah, all done online now. <laughs> so do you, you do this as, as your role with BirdLife International? Yes. So obviously the RSPB are the uh, British part of BirdLife International. They're the, the UK BirdLife partner, yes. So... Do you take information that they've got and then take information from other partners yes. and then you take everything up together to, to head office, which yes. is where we're sitting now, and then cogitate and then work out? Ye how you yes. Can help? With this project, it's more been about mobilising global data sets. So, for okay. example, CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, they maintain databases on legal trade in CITES listed species and there's also databases on illegal trade. There are various other different sort of data sets, global data sets that look at different sort of parts of the trade spectrum. But no one's ever tried to pull them all together before to see, firstly, sure. to see whether they're telling you the same story. Yeah. Are they all kind of identifying completely different species in different places or are they all kind of telling you the same thing? Yeah. They're all shining spotlights from different directions on this dark and nebulous problem. What is happening? Can you tell me? Uh, well, do you think that... what is remarkable what, what what i found remarkable was that these data sets even though they're you know, some of them look at domestic trade some of them look at international trade some of them look at legal trade some look yeah. at illegal trade but they're all very consistently identifying the same species the same relatively small number of species are consistently being identified in all these different trade data sets so that kind of gives us some confidence to say yes these are the species that are most potentially sure. most threatened by trade and, and am i right in saying that they're either quite cute little colourful things or interestingly big dynamic things? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, they're, they're quite cute, either little colourful things or little things that sing very beautifully. Okay. Okay, so we still... But, but there are whole groups of birds, I mean, little sort of brown forest undergrowth species that got ant in the name, ant pitters, ant thrushes, all those sorts of things, very rarely appear in trade because you know, they don't look nice, they don't sound nice, they're sure. difficult to breed in captivity, no one wants them. Poor guys. Yeah, no, lucky guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, with that research, are you going to get to travel anywhere interesting? Uh, no, this is this is entirely desk, desk based study. I, I oh, sort sorry. of, I feel I've done a lot of um, travelling for work in my time. I feel slightly guilty about it now, so I'm kind of looking forward to a non-travelling future. Much as I love travelling. Well, in which case, that brings me on to something that you define as an extinction driving, landscape splitting, wildlife slaughtering, <laughs> soundscape shattering, pollution spewing, climate changing, health wrecking, global catastrophe. <laughs> I was really pleased with that sentence. I thought you might have been. <laughs> um, what have I just described? You've described something that doesn't have a name and that I had to make up a name for it. It's called traffication. Okay. Now, it seems quite extraordinary to me that the growth in the number of cars, the increase in the speed of those cars, the the spread of our road network, both in length and in width, doesn't have a name. There isn't a word for it. It's one of the biggest social changes of the last century. And we haven't got a word to describe the problem. I, I, can't, I have no real explanation for why it is that we don't have a name for this problem. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a name for a problem, you can't stop to talk about it. So I was very struck in the 1990s, there was a series of scientific papers came out written by um, a Dutch research team led by a chap who's now a friend of mine, Ruud Foppen. 
And they showed more clearly than anything else before that roads can drive down populations of birds for considerable distances to either side, not just right next to the roadside mm -hmm. where you imagine that, you know, things are at their worst, yeah. but for up to a kilometre on either side. Now, if you look at a map of the Netherlands where they did the research or, or England or the UK, you'll see that there isn't very much land anywhere that's more than a mile from a road. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, this this is surely this, the beginning of something really big. People have got to listen to this. I mean, this is like, everyone was working on farmland birds at the time. I was working on farmland birds at the, at the time. You doing your skylark thing at the time. I was yeah. doing my skylark thing at the time. And and I think because the kind of the new game in town was farmland birds, these papers from the Netherlands got slightly overlooked. But because I come from this carless family and my parents have always kind of been rather anti-car, I kind of maybe paid a little bit more attention to it than most people. Sure. And I thought, well, this is the beginning of something big, surely. I mean, if these guys are right, and they are, why, why are we even looking at farmland birds? Why aren't we looking at this as well? Sure. You know, why, why, sorry, why are we only looking at farmland birds? Why aren't we looking at this issue as well? And I kept thinking, well, someone's got to sort of pick this up. And there's been more and more scientific papers published on what's now called road ecology mm -hmm. in the last 20, 30 years. Huge numbers, very few of them by anyone in Britain. It seems to have completely bypassed us here. So when, no one's when, ever tried to put it all together before. Okay, well, let's, let's go back a little bit further. When did road ecology start as a thing? Like, when did roads first exist? Well, yeah, it's a good question. Well, ro roads existed long before cars came along, of sure. course, because uh, they were used by horses. And were, for, for a brief period in the late Victorian age, the, the craze in cycling, absolute mm -hmm. mania for cycling. The first British petrol-powered car journey on a road took place in 1895. And since then... Well, with the exception of the uh, of the COVID lockdown, it's only gone one way that the the number of vehicle miles every year, the number of vehicles and the number of miles they travel every year has only ever gone up. So we now have something like a quarter of a million miles of road in the UK, and we drive astonishing distances. I, there was an amazing fact that I read in your book, which was that although the first car hit the road in 1895, the first petrol pump didn't exist till 1919. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And in yeah. fact, there's an electric car that predates the first yes. petrol car from 1888 yes. called the Flocken Electro Wagon. Yes, that's right, yeah. So electric cars and steam cars, even as late as 1900, the industry still hadn't decided on the optimum sort of fuel. Was uh, it a legitimate competition, do you think? Because um, well, Rudyard Kipling had a steam car. Yeah, he? he didn't like it very much, though. <laughs> it didn't seem to do... Uh, it didn't seem to bring him very much pleasure. He seemed to get scolded quite a lot. <laughs> but I mean, in, in 1900, in America, there were more electric and steam-powered cars sold than there were petrol-powered cars. And there were but, yeah, advantages to all of them. Um, electric cars, very easy to drive, very easy to start, but mm -hmm. very limited range with those big heavy lead-acid batteries. Yeah. Steam cars, possibly the, the least practical, but, of course, with a long heritage because steam vehicles had we a long, a we long heritage. Doing, yeah. The first vehicles on roads were steam driven yeah. agricultural vehicles so you know there was there was a lot of people set up to make steam cars and then the sort of main problems with fuel cars petrol cars was getting the thing started in the first place sure. and the availability of fuel so at that point i would imagine the idea of a, a road ecologist was anathema like mm. when, at what point between 1895 and now did someone come along and say these things might actually have an effect upon biodiversity and habitat structure, yeah, etc. Yeah. Well, enter the stoners. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this this couple I, I sort of slightly fell in love with while I was writing this book, Dayton and Lillian Stoner, uh, who lived in Iowa City in uh, the state of Iowa in the USA. In 1924, they set out on a journey, and 
they hadn't traveled very far before they started seeing lots of dead animals on the road. Now, clearly people had seen dead animals on the road before. Mm -hmm. What made this different was that instead of just driving on past, they wrote down all the species that they saw. They'd stop and get out and examine the more mangled remains. Were they scientists? Um, yes. Or yes. just enthusiasts? No, no, no. The, the, Dayton was a zoology professor. Okay. And Lillian later became state ornithologist of New York. Fantastic. And imagine oh, wow. an idea of a state employing an official ornithologist. I don't yeah. suppose they have state ornithologists anymore. Maybe they do. I don't know. But what was different about what they did was they actually published their results. Uh -huh. They published their results in a journal called Science, which is now the world's most, well, one of the world's most prestigious journals. And they said, look, you know, here's a problem. We drove this number of miles. We counted all these different dead animals. If this is happening all around the country, which it must be, then this must be one of the biggest threats to wildlife that we face. I mean, there must be like hundreds of thousands, millions of these animals being killed every mm. year on America's roads. And that started this trend, which somebody has called deadless mania, this sort of fascination with publishing lists of roadside casualties, sure. roadkill. And there were, that soon after the stoners there was just this flood of papers came out because it's a nice easy thing to do if you're driving along yeah. just count a few birds write and put a, put them together in a little table send them off to a journal and you get a nice publication data gathering, of them. <laughs> data gathering for most scientists is just trudging through places endlessly with a clipboard the idea of doing it from the comfort of a car yes a slow moving car yeah, yeah another, yeah, another snake yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there were all these papers came out but but the issue was almost entirely about roadkill. I mean, uh -huh. all, all the early years of what we now call road ecology. Sure. The, the term only really became a term in 1998 when an American called Richard Foreman wrote an article called Road Ecology. Could you argue that at that point, the primary problem with trafficking was roadkill because cars were less in number, fewer yeah. number? Yeah. They were le uh, less noisy, I presume. Slower. Slower. Slower being the most... Yeah the, the, yeah, the roads were thinner. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you've already mentioned that the damage that a road causes is, is a kilometre back from the road, mm. if not a little bit further. So then trafficking was perhaps, as the stoners thought, just yes. the cuckoos that were hitting the windscreen. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, think, I think only as cars became more numerous, and particularly as they became faster, mm -hmm. that all these other problems, noise pollution, fragmentation and so on, started to become real problems. Do you put all trafficking problems underneath speed? I would say that almost all the problems associated with trafficking increase exponentially with speed. Okay. So in the sense that if, if we started trundling around at 25 miles an hour tomorrow, like the stoners did, then most of the problems that my book discusses would either disappear or become much less overnight. Before we talk about all the big bad problems, of which there's a few, <laughs> yes. um, I would like to first talk about one of the best things that road travel has given us, which is the Nekasar Nightjar. <laughs> yeah, the Nekasar Nightjar, yes. So th this, this is a very interesting thing. So this was uh, a wing of a bird picked up in Nekasar National Park, in, mm -hmm. which is in southwestern Ethiopia. And only the wing was left. Presumably the rest of the bird had been flattened or taken away by a predator or something like sure. that. But there was this wing lying on a road presumed to be from roadkill, which was quite unlike anything else. Mm -hmm. And nobody's been able to uh, match it to another species. It's quite different in size and structure and so forth. And so even though no one knows what the rest of the bird looks like, sure. there is now a bird called the Nechsar nightjar. But there is an interesting corollary to this, which is I've heard that somebody is doing some genetic, somebody's extracted DNA from this. You can extract DNA from feathers. Sure. And there may be some doubt about whether it's actually a full species or oh, whether no. it's a hybrid. I haven't seen the results of it, so I don't know. 
Oh, that was the only good thing about road travel that I could think of. <laughs> okay, where would you like to start? Do you want to start on pollutants and NEEs? Do you want to go to sound? Do you want to go to light? Where would you like to begin? I think the most important thing is sound. Okay, come on. And, and to me, the, the impacts of noise pollution, I think, are probably, for things like birds and mammals, are probably the most serious parts of the impacts of trafficking. And if, if we think of road noise, we might sort of imagine what it's like if we're standing right next to the, the mm -hmm. road, the kind of din of road noise. If you stand right next to a busy road, you're getting something like 85, 90 decibels of noise. And that's coming from the engines as well as the tyres on the tarmac. It, it's mostly actually uh, the rolling noise and aerodynamic noise. So it's mostly... Is that because our engines are good now? It's because our engines are a lot quieter than they used to be, and are, well, particularly because our exhausts are more efficient than they sure. used to be. So the same isn't true of motorbikes. Motorbikes... Most of the noise is engine noise. But Half for... the fun of riding a motorbike by the <laughs> is the sound of the exhaust yeah, at the back. Yeah, not, not fun for the people nearby necessarily, but yeah, so most, most of the noise produced by cars at least is rolling noise or aerodynamic noise. Okay. And that again increases exponentially with speed. So the, the faster you go, if you drop your speed level from 40 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour, the noise your car makes halves. So this is a problem which therefore mm. suggests that electric vehicles are no different from petrol vehicles. Well, uh, not above a certain speed, they're not. No, sure, they're, okay. they're, they're a little quieter, but not very much quieter. So what kind of problems does this cause? And, and, and you haven't yet used the word anthropophony. Well, people call it noise pollution. Sure. Okay, but I, I don't think noise pollution is a very logical description of the problem so yeah you know, air pollution is the pollution of air yep. water pollution is the pollution of water mm -hmm. soil pollution is a pollution of soil but noise pollution isn't the pollution of noise sure no noise is the pollution which sounds a bit pedantic but it does beg the question of what it is that noise actually pollutes yeah so it's not pure silence because otherwise a singing bird would be classed as noise pollution or yeah. you know waves lapping on a beach or whatever would be classed as noise pollution so if you think of the noise an animal receives it falls into three categories. So it's the, the noise that other animals make. Mm -hmm. There's the noise that the environment makes. So the sound of the wind, the sound of waves, all those sorts of things. And then there's the sound we make. Now, those first two things are what makes an animal's natural soundscape. These are the, the sounds that an animal is naturally evolved to live with to respond to mm -hmm. and then we come along and blast it to pieces with 85 90 decibels of traffic noise which does all sorts of terrible things to the great majority of animals for which hearing is a vitally important mm -hmm. part of life but so there are in your book you suggest that there are birds that have given up singing at rush hour altogether mm -hmm. because they can't compete but also you talk of the fact that robins have developed a new tone of voice so that they can talk over yes so the damage therefore is species specific it's not yes there's so a number of birds are able to respond to traffic noise by changing the pitch at which they sing both mm -hmm. the pitch and the volume so they sing birds in areas with heavy traffic levels sing louder and higher now those two things are very strongly correlated and scientists can't agree amongst themselves whether it's the singing louder that's important or the singing higher in other words trying to climb above sure. the soundscape pollution because of something called the lombard effect now the lombard effect is that there's lots of interesting things in the lombard effect but it's what happens when you put more energy into your voice like this sure. so if you change the energy you put into your voice lots of things change your your lungs behave differently your glottis behaves differently but also happens is your the pitch of your voice goes up you can't scream or shout in a deep voice brian blessed would disagree but, all right brian, brian blessed yeah maybe he's the only one who can <laughs> so 
th these birds that are being affected by heavy traffic noise sing louder and higher than birds that aren't. Now, the birds that aren't able to respond in this way, they simply abandon areas near roads. Okay. Or they do very, very badly there and populations die out. Because they can't find a mate, they can't communicate dangers, so they're predated All those on more, things. a whole yeah. lot of things. Okay. All those things, yeah. And birds actually have rather poor hearing, actually much poorer hearing than, than we do. So if we're, if we're listening to traffic noise and trying to hear the sound of things over it, mm -hmm. our better hearing allows us to sort of pick up sounds that birds won't be able to hear. So birds actually struggle to hear each other against a, a background of traffic noise more than we struggle to hear them. So it's a bigger problem That's really for interesting. Them. Yeah, yeah. You think that birds had fabulous hearing because yeah. they produce all this beautiful song. You think that they had great ears to pick but it up. But they produce all that beautiful song because they can't hear very well. <laughs> well so if human beings yeah. had less good hearing, we might sound more interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's, that's a possibility, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and am I right in saying that plants also respond to this anthropophony? Yeah, there's, there's almost no research on this, but I came across two papers, one by, an, in, a, in a very obscure journal in America, one by an undergraduate student, mm -hmm. and another one by a team of Iranian researchers. And what they did was they grew plants in a laboratory, and they divided up their sample randomly. And to one group of plants, they played traffic noise, and to another group of plants, they played kind of natural sounds. And they found that the group of plants that were raised in an atmosphere of traffic noise did much, much worse they grew to only about half the height. What was really interesting was that they changed the hormones that they produced. So the, the likely explanation is that the vibrations caused by traffic noise cause a plant to think that it's being under attack by aphids or mm -hmm. a herbivore or something like that. And the natural response of plants to do that is to produce these toxins, tannins and things like yeah. that, stress defense chemicals. So they put less energy into growing and more energy into producing these toxins. How many more pieces of research would be required to accompany the Iranians before we can consider that scientific fact? No, I, don't, I really don't know. I mean, it does seem very odd to me that, that this whole issue isn't being looked at in more detail. There's been some work from China that shows that road dust, the stuff that kind of is created by the erosion of your tyres and the mm -hmm. road surface, and blows away from the road, settles on plants, uh, reduces yields of rice and other crops by 10% or more because it's blocking photosynthesis. It blocks photosynthesis, blocking photosynthesis, blocks other yeah, yeah. stomata for water yeah, yeah. transference and all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. And also ozone, which is a byproduct of gases produced by car engines, they decompose in, in light to produce ozone, is very toxic to some plants as well. Well, let's move on to that. Let's move on to NEEs and other mm -hmm. pollutants. So, first off, what is an NEE? Uh, non-exhaust emissions. So if you think of pollution produced by a car, you'd probably form this mental image of a, a tailpipe or a, a, an exhaust pipe with black smoke belching from it. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that isn't the case anymore. For, for particulate pollution, that's the little kind of specks of pollution in the atmosphere. Most of it now comes from the erosion of tyres on the road surface and the, and the corresponding erosion of the road surface and the erosion of your brake pads when you put your brakes on. I read in your book, and this is my source for quite a lot of the things that I've read lately, <laughs> that somewhere between 10 and 60, around 30% of ocean microplastic now mm. comes from tyres. Yes, car tyres, yes. That's insane. Yeah. So why aren't we developing tyres or roads or even brake pads out of, a, I don't know, a biodegradable polymer that is safe and happy or 
doing something to try and make this technology that, from my eyes, mm. doesn't seem to have changed for a hundred years it, it Tarm since Tarmacadam was created. It hasn't or rubber changed because there's no tires. yeah, it, it hasn't changed because there's no legal impetus for change. Cars are now required. Car engines are now required. There's very very stringent guidelines on what particulate pollution sure. car engines can We've produce. We've made catalytic catalytic, catalytic converters. converters like. so, yeah, because there's there's very very stringent rules that car manufacturers have to avoid when when they've been caught trying to get around them like uh, Volkswagen did. You know, there's a huge furore. So yeah, and and the particulate emissions from car engines has fallen massively over time, massively. But there is absolutely no regulations at all guiding tire manufacturers there's nothing at all to say that tire manufacturers have to meet certain environmental standards they can put the one they don't even have to disclose what's in the tires sure so if Volkswagen wanted some good press to get people to stop talking about their emission scandal they should start investing in tire research and alternate rubber yeah technologies. I mean I, I, don't, I don't know if Volkswagen uh, produce tires but the, the big tire producers there's no incentive for them to make their tires any less polluting because that would make them possibly more expensive yeah but i think there's a there's a huge potential problem you possibly remember reading the book about the coho salmon mm -hmm. which has really put this tire wear pollution to the top of the agenda so that for many years scientists were really puzzled by why all these coho salmon were dying they were, they were going to the puget sound in um, northwest coastal usa mm -hmm. and just dying in, in huge numbers. And scientists couldn't work out what was killing them. And they realized that these salmon deaths occurred primarily after rainfall. So what they speculated was that rainfall was washing some sort of pollutant into these streams and pools where the salmon were and killing them. And eventually they found that if they put tire wear particles and nothing else in a tank with coho salmon, they exhibited exactly the same symptoms and they all died. Mm -hmm. But then having identified that, because there's nothing on tyre manufacturers, no impetus, there's no requirement for tyre manufacturers to say what's in their tyres. They then had to find out which of the hundreds of different chemicals in yeah. their tyre wear solution was responsible. And they eventually found it. It's this thing called 6PPD, which is a preservative. And it's incredibly toxic to certain species of fish. It forms a quinone in water, just changes, very slight chemical change in water. It produces this stuff that's lethally toxic to certain species of fish, but completely, apparently harmless to other to species of fish. So it's just a really weird thing. And then when they identified this 6-PPDQ as being the thing that's killing the coho salmon, they sure. thought, well, let's just have a look, see what else 6-PPD is producing. They found 38 other chemicals that weren't known about. We've no idea how toxic they are to anything else. Are we lucky, therefore, that it wasn't a keystone species that had a whole sort of trophic cascade of problems if we lost those salmon, if we'd lost something more... Well, it, important it, 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 it kind of is a keystone species because it, it's culturally and economically very important. Okay. And, it, and if it hadn't been, we wouldn't know about 6PPDQ. Hmm. But now now they've identified it, 6PPDQ is turning up all around the world because 6PPD, the chemical that is then transformed into 6PPD, into into yeah, yeah. is found in pretty much all tyres. There's no other thing, there's no other chemical known in the tyre manufacturing industry that gives the same qualities of... It preserves rubber from ozone. So if... Sound is universally bad for electric and carbon-powered cars, or oil, petrol-powered cars, and NEEs are being created by all kinds of cars. Is electric transport better in any form? Well, I mean... Is this a society going down a dog's leg of destruction, but thinking they're not? Well, it, it depends. I mean, in terms of... In terms of carbon emissions of construction and running it, yes, our footprint's going down, yeah? Well, it will go down slightly. So, I mean, the carbon cost of creating a, an electric car is much higher. 
Okay. That is higher than the cost of because um, we make fewer of them at the moment. Well, because there's more metal in them, so there's all the all the energy that's given off with smelting them and sourcing sure. those metals and so forth, and it you know, they require a lot of of rare earth minerals and so forth that have their own kind of carbon. Sure. But but as as they get better, then yes, the overall lifetime carbon output of a battery car will probably be, will be better, lower than the overall lifetime so output. Electric of Electric cars good, eventually. Yes, except that. One of the problems maybe Because you own an that, electric car, I can see. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do, yeah. And we just use it for sort of pootling around locally. But but one of the problems potentially is that people will actually drive more. Sure. So there are very few statistics out there on how people's driving behaviour changes because not many countries record mileage separately for different power sources. Mm-hmm. But there are a few countries. So there's been some work done in Australia that suggests that people who move from petrol cars to battery cars, electric cars, drive about 600 kilometres a year more than they did before because they think it's kind of it's first it's a bit cheaper and secondly they think oh well we're, we're fine now we don't need to get the bustle cycle we've got, we're electric but that's the question of correlation versus whatever like it, the people who own electric cars right now from what i can see are normally people who can afford to buy them they're not cheap things yeah, to buy that's right so normally they're people who can take time to travel or yeah. have a desire to go somewhere exciting that's like, right so i do we know whether or not that distance is increased because they are ethically entitled to travel more mm. because they've got an electric car or simply because compared to those that are still driving their old 1980s yeah. Nissan, whatever? Well, the simple answer is we don't know, or at least I don't know yeah. the answer to that question. But if it is the case, I mean, and clearly, you know, we've got very, very little information on how people change their driving behavior. And secondly, the people who are early adopters of electric vehicles might not be representative of the, yeah, majority, yeah. as you've just said, might not be representative of the majority of motorists. So we really don't know. Of course, we'll find out after 2035 when... When they supposedly got rid of petrol cars. When they supposedly got rid of uh, and, internal and, combustion yeah. engines. Do you think, and this is the big question, do you think private transport is here to stay? Do you think there's ever going to be a world where non-trafficated public transport is going to be good enough and widespread enough to enable us to not be so... Because I, I live in the countryside. I, mm. I do need a car. Mm. Otherwise, I can't get anywhere. The nearest bus stop is a drive away. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, most of human history, of course, has been not with cars. But, that, so, but we have evolved to have societies, rural or urban, yes. that require motor, individual yeah. motor transport. Yeah, we've sort of gone down a blind alley in the sense that we've, we've changed everything now yeah. to be reliant on the car and changing it all back again. Well, that's what's interesting. We haven't mentioned it yet, but the 1963 Beeching Report... Mm where we started to dismantle our railways. Yeah, yeah. That was the point of no return, is the way I can see it. Well, not no return. Or not the easy return. Yeah, exactly, not easy return, yeah. But there's, I mean, the the point I'm trying to make in in my book is that the solution, there are are lots of solutions to all the problems that I list in the book about, you know, how cars destroy wildlife, how they destroy Mm -hmm. our health in, in loads of different ways, many, many different ways. But there are equally wide range of solutions that, don't necessarily require us to give up driving. We just drive less, drive more sensitively, drive slower. There are loads, drive slower. There are loads of things that we can do to reduce roadkill. You know, these green bridges that are being developed now are fantastically successful in reducing roadkill. There's kill a picture of one in road. Canada, I think. In yeah, 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 the Banff, Banff National Park, where they these the kind of science of road crossings or permeable, the permeable road was largely undertaken. Do you think it will be led by drivers then? Do you think it will be people wanting to have an environmental transport system that people will choose themselves to drive slower will choose themselves to buy slightly less powerful cars i i think that well yes and no i mean certainly some people will so i think i'm hoping that uh when wildlife conscious people read my book they're going to think oh blimey 
what have I been doing all these years? Mm-hmm. But let's adopt some of these solutions. Let's let's drive slower. Let's not drive at night. Let's yeah. let's do all these different things. Next time we buy a car, let's make it a smaller, lighter car. So there's all these things that we can do that will hugely reduce the impact that we do. One of the reasons I've got hope is that this is a problem that's spread evenly across the population. Mm-hmm. Now, with climate change, we can all do our own bit to reduce climate change. Yeah, we can put solar panels on, we can get air source heat pumps, we can do all these different things. But there are still other sectors, industries that are churning out greenhouse gases that we can't do anything about. Yeah. They're kind of hidden behind the locked doors of big business boardrooms and stuff like that. But with trafficking, we're all equal contributors to the problem. So if we all did something, then the problem will go away. Sure. There isn't another kind of sector doing all this driving that, that is immune from it. So in that sense, I do have some hope. And I hope that people reading the book will think, mm, blimey, I didn't know I was causing all that damage. Mm. I'm going to be a little bit more careful in future. Yeah, well, I mean, that's certainly been the case for me. And certainly with my journey to meet you, I felt like there'd be some kind of test when I arrived. <laughs> you, uh, because we haven't touched on it, very, very briefly, you said do not drive at night time. I presume that's because of light pollution. Well, partly because of light pollution, partly because roadkill rates are much higher at night. Mm-hmm. And partly because there are fewer cars on the road anyway. So you become a bigger part of the problem. Okay. So it's not just blinding deers with your big bright LED well, headlights. Well, that, that's and... partly it, yeah. And light pollution, I think, is kind of a, a greatly underestimated source of um, pollution, a bit like soundscape pollution sure. is as well. There's a lot of research recently I've read about bats and how their mm. migratory routes are being affected by yeah. the g- generic hum of streetlights at night time that constantly are on. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, and things like moths, you know, many species of moth are declining mm. at alarming rates in the UK. And, and that could possibly be because of light pollution as well. There was one of the things that I found a bit, a bit not fun, but interesting in your book, how there are certain species, there was a freshwater turtle that was deliberately laying its eggs nearer to roads mm. because whether it had worked it out or not, the reality was there were fewer predators That's for right, those yeah. eggs. Yeah. So it would do that. So there'd obviously be a loss of eggs and turtles as a result of the proximity mm. of the roads, but the net loss of that was mitigated by the lack of predation. Yes. The convolution and the issues of how everything is affected is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Bizarre. Well, I mean, I think that the same is true for certain bird species. So if you look at our commonest bird species, wrens, robins, things like that, they're utterly unaffected by roads, blue tits, great tits. They're completely unaffected. And I think that is why they've become our commonest species. So what what happens if if you get a landscape and you put hundreds of billions of vehicle miles across that landscape Mm -hmm. then anything near roads that's sensitive to that will decline Mm -hmm. go down in numbers anything that's not sensitive or possibly even benefits somehow like the turtles or you know nesting near the roads with a lack of predators will go up so what what you have is the bird the natural bird community being pulled apart with the road sensitive species declining and the road tolerant or even road benefiting species increasing sure and I think that's what's happened to the UK bird population so our bird population is horribly imbalanced our top 10 species make up about 60% of all the individual birds in the UK. That's really a terrible Am I right in saying we've got 630-odd species of birds that visit Britain? or a... no, no, something about 240 breeding species. Breeding species, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, so that's a hell of a ratio. Well, it, the, the top 10 species making up over 60% of all the birds in the UK. Yeah, that's, that's... that's kind of a very unhealthy imbalance yeah it's almost like the conservative party <laughs> let's not bring politics into this <laughs> i'll get enough hate mail as it is <laughs> is there is there a way our country is full of roads 
they're all bisecting each other. Mm. And we've made all these little sort of green pockets held over, most of which are agricultural pockets. Do you foresee a future where to mitigate trafication that we have to start removing roads and simplifying national infrastructure? Well, Because you don't touch on that in the book. It's one of the things you don't go into. Well, the, 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 there are two things. So if, if you want to make the countryside more permeable, there are ways of doing it that don't require you to take roads Tunnels out. and bridges. You, you can put tunnels and yeah. bridges and things like that in. Yeah. We're talking about yeah. light tunnels as well, not like <clears throat> yeah. passageways. All, but, all, there are yeah. all sorts of ways that you can facilitate the passage of animals across. And, and that's going to become more and more important as climate change starts to Hot bite. Hot air because, balloons for hedgehogs. Yeah, <laughs> Hot air balloons, yeah, don't stand too close to them. <laughs> but um, what's happening now is one of the responses of wildlife to climate change is that species are shifting their distributions to, to track moving climate patterns. And in, in the UK, that's been a northward shift of, of cold tolerant species and, and a sort of re, their replacement by warm tolerant species. So mm -hmm. there's this kind of movement northwards of species ranges. And species ranges, birds at least, are changing in exactly the way that computer models based on climate and nothing else predicted they would 20, 30 years ago. Hmm. So we need to make the countryside more permeable. We need to allow these species to try to and move. move to track these moving climate envelopes. And one of the ways you can do that is to make roads more permeable or, as you suggest, reduce our road density. Now, you might think that America is the kind of world's car capital, but they have 0.7 miles of roads per square mile of land. We've got 1.7 miles per square mile of land, more than twice as much than the USA has. And our road network is a really inefficient sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at it, it's quarter of a million miles in a small of, of road curled up in a small country. If you were to redesign it tomorrow, connecting the maximum number of people with the smallest number of roads, our road density will fall hugely. Now, it's not like we can do that, but there are ways we can not exactly decommission, but, but ensure that certain roads are used less and other roads are used more. So there's a very interesting idea that came out of the Netherlands not long ago. It was based on some computer modelling. And it suggests that a lot of road in he very heavily trafficated countries like the UK and the Netherlands, a lot of the journeys are made on sort of little rural roads sure and the idea is that if you can and this is through traffic this isn't kind of local use this is people moving through the yeah. area if you could somehow divert that traffic onto a smaller number of main roads you could encourage motorists by let's say you know increasing the speed limit on the main roads or making them wider or whatever and then you could discourage people from using the smaller roads you know you put a, a lower speed limit on them or you yeah. make them one way or you decommission them all together or something like that then you could actually de-trafficate big areas of land. It's a bit like drainage. If you've got flooded land, yeah. the best way to, to drain that land of water is to increase the water flow in the adjacent rivers. Exactly how they drained the fens mm -hmm. in East Anglia, for example. Yeah. They straightened the rivers, made the water flow faster. Well, the reams in um, Glastonbury near me. Yes, yeah. yeah. So you can kind of drain the land of traffic by encouraging more vehicles onto main roads. And then you can put all your bridges and your fences on those sure. roads to mitigate roadkill and so forth so there are ways of doing it but i mean the the you know if we all dropped our speed that would it would be the same thing so that's the take home from this anyone who's listening the best thing they can do is to drop their speed yes great if you remember one thing from reading my book please remember that and then the other thing in europe is they've got lisa lisa light and safe yes yeah, so this is move now to making vehicles lighter and safer so, you know we, we all know that a large proportion of the vehicles on our roads are far bigger than they need to be, Lovely bigger and heavier. Chelsea tractors. Chelsea tractors and the like, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, that, that trend hasn't declined, even yeah. though we all know that they're burning too much fuel and that they cost too much carbon to make and all these different sorts of things. They're just completely unnecessary for the majority of users. Mm -hmm. So smaller, lighter, slower vehicles, 
get you there at the same speed, get you there in the same time, because yeah. you know the slower vehicles travel on average, the better the traffic flow, and therefore the more journey times are reduced. Mm -hmm. We don't need all these big cars. But that is an objective set by the EU. So for any hypothetical country that's left the EU, we don't have those plans to well, manifest. Well, if, if any country were silly enough to leave the EU, then I guess they would, yes. I mean, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they would then no longer be bound by laws that seem to me to be perfectly sensible. But in fact, it's yeah. not a law yet. It, it, it's sure. it's the, the, the least a light and safe thing is, is kind of more of an aspiration than a law. Okay. But it's something we'll have to do. And, you know, why not? There are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. The first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? I would walk out of this house, down that track over there, uh, down to the sea. What would you want to see there? Any seabirds at all. Gannets, Manx Shearwaters, Puffins, they're all down there. Do you have a favourite? My favourite bird in the world? I, I sort of, I would have to say Skylark, really, because that's kind of... You've, you'll miss the Skylark. I, I, spent, I spent years studying them, but... Um, I do love them, but I don't know. I spent a lot of time watching gannets and Manx shearwaters recently. I think, yeah, how fabulous they are. Are you a birder with a list? I'm a, I'm a birder that used to do a lot of twitching, but no longer does. So you don't know how many different species you've seen? In Britain, I think I've, I've seen, well, because of my early twitching days, I've seen quite a few. I've seen about 460 species so in Britain. Plus 400, huh? Yeah. I've just come from the Global Bird Fair, so that's sort of like, that's a. Oh, right. That's a, <laughs> There's a lot of people over, well over 500 now, but I, I just I just can't be bothered. <laughs> Second question, who is your natural history hero? When I was very young, I used to spend all my school holidays. I used to live in Manchester when I was very young, grew up in Manchester. I used to spend all my school holidays volunteering at the RSPB Reserve at Leighton Moss. Mm -hmm. And in those days, it was a tiny little place. I'm sure, I haven't been for years. I'm sure it's all car parks and cafes and shops now. But in those days, there was a little field, muddy field, where you, the odd car that turned up there parked. And I remember when they opened a shop there and it had about six books in it. And one of them was this book called Population Ecology of Raptors by a chap called Ian Newton. Catchy title. Catchy title. And even though I was only about 14 at the time, there was something about this book that I really wanted. So when my parents came to visit me, I begged them. I remember it was really expensive. It was about £10 or something. And they bought it for me. I've still got it here on the shelf. And I read it and I thought, I want to do this. This is what I want to do with my, my career. And I guess it's, they, they say you should never meet your heroes, but I've met Ian Newton. I know Ian Newton quite mm -hmm. well. And he's a completely wonderful guy. And he's the, the complete antithesis of that argument that you should never meet your heroes. I'm intensely proud that I'm on first name terms with this guy who, who to me was like a god when I was young. So um, he's my kind of conservation scientist hero but of course you know david attenborough is probably has has he read him. trafication i don't know well, he has actually because he wrote a very nice um review of it uh, at, at the front of the book You'll the review see something the very people nice. that give this book credit are some of the most in my opinion best people currently working and writing and researching in conservation science in my opinion like ruth tingo's there who i think is incredible yes james yeah. rebanks he's yeah, right there front yeah. and center he's a proper good egg yeah yeah oh i'm very grateful to all of them for for endorsing it yeah uh, and final question well there's a choice of two final questions i mean i'm changing the third question one of them is if you could bring any species back from extinction what would it be or what is the most wild encounter you've ever had i think probably the most dangerous thing i've ever done was although the friend i did it with claims it wasn't dangerous but i, I still <laughs> it still gives me nightmares was our work on the razo lark and we teamed up with this local organization called Beersfera, who 
used to go out to Razo from an island about 30 miles away in these little open ribs mm -hmm. with a little outboard motor on across. I mean, this is sort of mid-Atlantic, you know, so there's some pretty hefty swells. And we, I remember a few years ago, my friend Rob and I went there hoping to get to Razo and the weather was too bad. And on about the fourth, we were sort of sitting around kicking our heels on this island. On the fourth day, they said, right, come on, let's go. So we went out and I was expecting, they said, we're going to go buy a boat. And I was expecting this kind of, you know, proper rigid boat. And they got this little sort of plastic bag out of the car and they blew this thing up. I thought, oh my God, we're going to go across this open sea in this little thing. There were two of them. And we piled all these bags in and there was, I think there were six of us all together, four, five of us all together, on, on, divided between these two ribs. On one of them, the engine kept cutting out. And we were going through really quite sort of heavy seas you know, to the extent that the two boats could only see each other very occasionally when sure. we just happened to be both on the top of a different <laughs> wave. And we were going out towards the zombie, it was drenched within minutes. And then I looked down overboard and there were all these hammerhead sharks circling around underneath the boat. And uh, yeah, I was really glad when we got there, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, hammerheads are of a list of if you were to be worried about sharks you might put a hammerhead on that list. Mm, yeah. I mean, sharks yeah. are friends, so we, we don't like to badmouth sharks. Well, I sort of thought that the sharks might have known something about these boats because they didn't look very... They were <laughs> patched up as well. I'm glad to say that Biosphere now have a very, very nice boat that was donated to them. Very nice, proper metal hull boat. Was it donated to them by scared ornithologists? <laughs> it was donated to them by Sea Shepherd, actually. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a lovely boat that they've got now. But yeah, that, that really... Looking back on that, that was that was a raw nature experience, definitely. Fantastic. But we made it. We made it. Birds back from the from extinction. Oh, who wouldn't want to see a great orc? That's exactly what Sam West said yesterday. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> the great orc is a is a is a goodie. Yeah. Paul, thank you very much indeed. That's been lovely. Fantastic. Thanks very much, David. An enormous thank you to Paul for speaking with me for this episode. There is such a great deal to unpack from this interview, as well as slowing down. Perhaps the best way to start is to read Paul's book. I have recommended it to so many people to date. I plugged it in my interview last week with, uh, last month with Sam West. I believe that this book should be mandatory reading for all those wishing to take their driving tests. And I imagine there'll be many traffication sized Christmas gifts going out to my most gas guzzling friends this festive season. Thank you, too, to Volkswagen UK, in particular to Grant McPherson and Trevor Rickwood, who provided me with an electric car to make this journey to Scotland to talk with Paul. I was delighted that Volkswagen were keen to engage with this discussion. As Paul and I covered, we need car makers and indeed tyre makers and road makers, as well as traffic legislators and car drivers to engage in this topic, for it is pressing and it can be acted upon now. If you would like to know more about what Paul and I covered in this talk, or you want to watch a couple of videos that I made discussing the merits of modern electric road travel, yes, you can see me as well as hear me, then head to Paul's interview page on treesacrowd.fm. We will be back next month for one final episode before the festive season is upon us. But as always, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Mm -hmm.